This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers. Shift your business and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash snacky. This week on Meet and 3, we're revisiting Kitchen Joys to bring a bit of levity to life during lockdown. The major lesson is that I'm learning <laughs> to just enjoy anything that I can taste and to taste it slowly and to just enjoy it. Reach for those jars of jam, you know, maybe bourbon, that apricot jam, and maybe some lemon juice. Shake it vigorously and strain it uh, into a cocktail glass. It'll be delightful. It's like, no, what are you cooking? What do you like to cook? And naturally, that's going to be a little bit like a niche because you are not going to be an expert at everything. Your shtick could be that you are not an expert at everything, but you want to learn. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. In our ongoing coverage on the effects of the coronavirus on the restaurant industry, we are joined by Eater's editor-in-chief and longtime pal of Snacky Tunes, Amanda Clute. Amanda fills us in on how she has been guiding her team and adapting their coverage in order to keep everyone informed during the crisis. Later in the show, we are joined by Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter Pearl Charles, whose musical career has taken a genre-spanning arc from old-time music to 60s garage and psychedelica, and now, where we find her, a more 70s country rock and 80s smooth rock. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, joining us today for our ongoing coverage of the coronavirus pandemic is Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. Amanda, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Yes. First and foremost, how are you? I am hanging in there. Um, I have two kids at home, so it's it's quite a lot, but we are lucky Um that we are healthy and we have a backyard. Oh, the, the most lucky of all. Yes. <laughs> can you imagine this happening? I know that, can you imagine this happening during the winter? I mean, uh, it'll probably happen again oh in the winter. God. What will yes, that be like? No. Thank God we have spring. Yeah. Uh, I did think about um, while driving through uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn, seeing the lines at all the grocery stores and how it works because it's spring, but come summer or a really awful day in November, what is going to have to change for people who have to wait a hundred people deep just to go into a Whole Foods or a Wegmans? Right. I can't imagine. No. Um, So I want to take us back a a few months to uh, February Um, and just going through Eater's coverage about just how this uh, pandemic was began to be covered on the site. The, the first one that I saw, our article I saw from you was about the Hong Kong protests and how protests and the coronavirus were uh, impacting the food scene. And mm-hmm. then uh, another one on February 18th um, about going to support the local Chinatown, because although it seems like a million years ago, people were uh, boycotting, boycotting Chinatown because they didn't understand how the di- disease works. Yeah. Um, in February, um, considering that Eater is mostly based in the U.S., you know, what discussions were you having around the coverage of the, the virus and, you know, what responsibility did you have in, in covering it versus the balance of other articles and the regular Eater coverage that we used to know? Well, I think you're right that it started out as something that was more of an international story. And so we were looking to Hong Kong to see what how they were handling it and how it was impacted and then covering it domestically as a Chinatown story. And, you know, we were trying to almost advocate for the idea of people eating in Chinatowns uh, because they were unfairly avoiding them. And then it became 
for us, almost a story about canceled events like South by Southwest or covering what was happening to the Seattle downtown as those tech workers started working from home. And we didn't really have an idea of how widespread this would be and how it would impact pretty much every city that we're in. Um, but it just kind of kept evolving and, and kept evolving. And it it's almost nice that we have such a big network because the story is so local, even though it is a story that's impacting every single city in America, the, the nuance of it changes depending on what city you're in. So how we've covered it has kind of dependent on, you know, the, every local angle. And, and as we pulled into mid-March, where it looks like uh, mid-March is really where the coverage kind of just took over everywhere, in the, the days and weeks leading up to it, could you give us some insight into what those discussions were, especially as an editor-in-chief of how you were guiding your writers and guiding the site to, um, to do the coverage? Uh, and if, like, if any stories that were you were in the works for for some of your longer reads were in fact pulled to put resources towards this? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing is our staff is mostly made up of highly trained journalists and reporters, and so it was very easy for them to just engage with the story and cover it from their local angle. And that was not a big challenge. The challenge was, of course, the time it took. And um, everyone was working overtime to get those stories out in a timely manner. Um, If you remember when the regulations were coming out, it was very confusing. Like all of a sudden, New York was at 50% capacity and then New York was shutting down. And then this other city was doing 25% capacity. And it's kind of the way it's... things are reopening now. It happened when we were shutting down just very quickly and in a very confusing way. So that was pretty easy from an editorial point of view to just make sure that all the reporters were on it. They were getting the editing help that they needed, that they were calling all the right officials. The harder thing was, to your point, deciding what to do with things that were in the works for a long time and whether or not it was appropriate to run those stories. Um, You know, we've had a big push into travel over the last year, um, we've really invested in our travel packages. We've gotten a lot of sponsorships for our travel coverage. So we had a guide to Barcelona that was supposed to publish at the end of March. And we kept having discussions about when we would publish it and and how long we should put it off for. And at first it was like, okay, well, we'll just wait a week because it doesn't seem like the right time right now. And then um, by April, we realized that <laughs> you know, this, this is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and the same thing with, um, travel trips that we were reporting. So we had people out on a reporting trip at the end in, I think maybe mid February, they were going to go, um, to Ho Chi Minh city. And that quickly, uh, had to be scuttled for a different destination because it just didn't seem safe to send them there. We were worried they'd get stuck. And then even now just doing the trip at all seems um, not a waste of time because we'll be able to use their reporting. It just, if I were to, with hindsight 20 being 2020, I would not have even approved the trip at all (laughs) because who knows when we'll be able to really write that story. Safety is an interesting thing to bring up because journalists, I would deem are essential workers during this time, whether or not they have the official designation just by way of conveying information. Mm-hmm. What type of decisions do you feel you've had to make to get the coverage and, and how do you balance with 
journalists who maybe just don't feel safe or has that not really been an issue been an issue because they're such professionals? Well, luckily with most of the coverage, it's uh, doable from home. And then the people who do want to go out, um, you know, that's kind of up to them and we just make sure they're taking the right precautions. Uh, it's been interesting for our video team because their work is really hard to translate to the home because so many of our video shoots happen inside restaurants. So we were lucky in that we had a lot of material stored up that got us through till about now. Um, but now is when we're actually thinking about like, okay, when can we go back into a restaurant to shoot? What would we even do if we were to do that? So we're, we're playing around with a couple ideas right now covering the recovery effort, but it's just such a different kind of video than what we do in a different tone. And, and, you know, the audience comes to us for a certain thing. So that's something that we have to kind of see how it plays out in terms of the audience, but also like, if to your point, the journalists feel safe going into restaurants to do these shoots. I mean, adaptability is such a key thing here. And so many people, I feel we're trying to figure out what the future is going to be while the bottom was still, and it's yeah. still kind of falling, falling out. Um, have you seen any innovations um, or any types of paths forward that you think can lead to, as you said, different types of video or or where things might head? Or do you still feel that it's such a free fall that no decisions need to be made for an indefinite amount of time? I think it depends. Um, you know, with video, you see a lot of not innovation so much as adaptability when it comes to having people recording Zoom calls and using found footage and having chefs record themselves at home and then send that to you and you edit it together. It's just a different kind of story. Um, we found, I think there's an upside in terms of the events world because we we had gone really hard into events over the last year and they were doing really well for us. And uh, we obviously cannot do that in person right now, but we found that by doing online events, whether it's Zoom or more often than not Instagram Live, you actually get to engage with more people and involve more people and your talent can be anywhere. And that's been a kind of fun adaptation that this has forced us into um, where we wouldn't have really, we wouldn't have experimented in this way before. Uh, you know, I think what's interesting is like the role in which that Eater plays in the, the culinary world. What have you seen as a shift to the role of Eater, I'd say maybe, you know, January versus now? And, and how have you had to maybe refocus uh, given the climate? I mean, from the, um, the writer's point of view, we've just gotten, we've gotten into the home space. So we're not a home cooking site and we never will be. We're not going to be developing recipes, but we are definitely talking about dining at home and food culture in the home right now. And we were not doing that before. So we, we might've in January had articles about what movies or shows you could watch or what books or cookbooks to read. But now we're talking much more about, you know, how to transform your takeout into something that's a little more special or, what recipes from Smitten Kitchen we think you should be cooking from. So we're we're kind of, you know, getting into the space without taking the step to actually make recipes and develop recipes because there's so much there's so many great sources for that out there already. But it's kind of been fun to see how far we can go into this area and um what the audience really wants. What is a fun way to transform your takeout? 
I think it's just making it more special, like glamming it up a bit, putting some swooshes on the plate, taking it out of the container, obviously, <laughs> pouring yourself oh a nice taking out a container. <laughs> taking out a container is the biggest, the biggest hurdle. Yes. <laughs> like get, get some nice dishes together. And, and have you seen, um, and how much do, do you allow the audience to guide these stories? And again, like pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, as it is a new world, like are the audience asking out for certain things outside of guidelines or, or what is their, what are their needs? Yeah, we're always paying attention to the data. Um, so that was the same before as it is now. Uh, and it's important to pay attention to those things because your assumptions are often wrong. Like I, we pivoted our service content, um, pretty quickly. So, you know, we're not making maps of where you should be eating right now, but we have maps on where you should be getting takeout and, you know, which restaurants are providing groceries. And I thought that that would work almost (laughs) one-to-one and obviously that's not true. So the maps do well, but not, it's not anywhere close to the success we would have on a map of where you could be eating, you know, Chinese food out in New York versus where you can get Chinese food in. Um, And the people, our audience really wants news. They want to know about the guidelines for, the restaurants. They want to know what this restaurant industry is going to look like when it reopens. Um, we've had a lot of response to first person accounts from restaurateurs. So people really, you know, whether you're a restaurant buff or not, I think the industry is um, a point of focus for so many people right now. So any information they can get on how people are impacted and what this is going to look like at the end of this um, is really important. Um, as the editor in chief, how do you balance um, those kind of first person accounts and hearing from chefs versus almost a story fatigue? It's it's nothing to anyone, but how do you make sure that there remains a humanness to this and people are bringing um, new insights, um, but also not making sure that it becomes too repetitive or it's just the same story over uh, and over again? While yeah, I think that's supporting the, the culinary community. Right, that's the challenge. Is that it has to be an interesting story with an angle, just as any story you're running. And, you know, my inbox is full. I probably get 10 pitches a day from someone in restaurants wanting to tell their story. And, you know, more often than not, it's the same story that we've heard already. And that's what makes this so sad is that every personal story is this, you know, small, is this tragedy, but we can't just run every story. So there has to be an angle. There has to be a point of view um, or it has to be just beautifully written. So that's kind of what we're looking for. We're going to take a quick musical break, play a song from our archives, and we'll be back with Amanda Clute here on Snacking Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. <laughs>
things that Eater is really well known for are its restaurant reviews and criticism and critiques of the restaurant industry. What room, if any, do you see for criticism during during this time? I think that is a, a tough place to be. Uh, I don't think anyone really has the appetite for restaurant criticism in this moment. And I also don't know how you would do it just with, with takeout. Um, and you've seen restaurant critics across the country get furloughed in this moment, actually, as media kind of goes through its own crisis. Uh, luckily, our restaurant critics are utility players. So, um, you know, Ryan Sutton in New York writing for us is uh, kind of wonky and loves covering the labor beat. So he's had plenty of work to do right now. And Robert Sitsuma, who's always covering, you know, more accessible food and all kinds of outer borough food has been keeping his sandwich column going and is just out and about. Like he's the kind of person who you're not going to be able to keep inside. So he can always be your man on the street. Who's going to see what's going on and, you know, who's already getting crowded, who's opening for takeout, um, all that good stuff. So we've been lucky in that we've been able to, you know, have lots of work for these guys, but it's definitely not, um, reviewing restaurants. Can you define utility players? I just mean people who can cover all kinds of beats. So maybe you're known as a restaurant critic, but also you're just an ace reporter or you're a beautiful essayist. Um, and I think we've, we've had to really, push everyone into being utility players in this moment because maybe the beat that they were covering or the story that they had been working on doesn't make sense right now. Or in terms of, you know, the flood of news that's been coming in, we've needed more reporters just getting the news out. So we've had people who are maybe doing more long form work, um, writing quicker news pieces. Um, you know, we've had a features editor who's usually, editing long freelance pieces. And she really hopped in over the last month, just helping out the whole team editing their work. So it's, 
it's kind of been an all hands on deck moment for the team that's used to kind of focusing on their lane. Um, I mean, you can't really imagine that anyone see like with any of the restaurants innovating and trying to survive like automats um, and serviceless food that anyone would come with like a sharp pen or acid tongue to take it down during this time. No, no, it's, it's just not the time. I mean, it was similar actually in, in 2009, if you remember, it was, there was not as much room for critique or for any kind of mean spiritedness, not that criticism is mean spirited, but there was, there was not the appetite for it. And that slowly came back. And I think that will be the same this time around. Like eventually when things feel more normal, um, we can go back to the place of treating restaurant criticism as cultural criticism, but it just doesn't seem, you know, right for a while. Yeah. Uh, in addition to getting 10 stories a day of people who are trying to tell their story, I can only imagine that you're also getting all the different innovations and creative ways people are trying to move forward. I think one of the greatest ones I saw was the restaurant mannequins. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? And uh, I'd just be curious to know if you were willing to sit next to um, a lifeless body just in order to eat out. <laughs> yeah, the the restaurant mannequins, that's a story from the Inn at Little Washington, which is a very high-end restaurant with three Michelin stars in Virginia and they're filling the restaurant with mannequins so that it doesn't feel as empty when you are dining there. Um, I think I would rather dine in a half empty restaurant than next to mannequins, but I, I like the creative spirit behind the move. Um, and yeah, there are, there are places trying all kinds of, of things, nothing quite as, um, absurdist as that. But usually the things we hear about are more pragmatic about restaurants turning into grocery stores or restaurants launching new takeout concepts in this time um, or, you know, the to-go cocktail trend has been very big. In terms of reopening, I think people are trying to find ways to keep their staff safe and their restaurant and their restaurant diner safe. Um I have gotten some press releases for some very fancy partitions for high-end restaurants. So I'll be interested to see if anyone actually buys those and puts them in. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what makes one plexiglass better than the, the next? Right. <laughs> uh, and and you know, one of the things that this is exposed, um, especially being home with my parents who don't know much about the restaurant industry is people beginning to really wake up and see a lot of the failings of the current climate. Um, I think two of the, the areas that you cover really well is, you know, just the absolute um, razor thin margins or debt that chefs go into. Um, and then also the failings of the meat industry. Um, touching on the, the razor thins, like from your own uh, opinion and what you're seeing, like, do you a think that a lot of the restaurants will come back in their current state? And if not, how do you think that they might even be willing to be rebuilt in the future? So there might be some future that people don't have to perpetuate this ongoing cycle of um, in over your headedness and no escapism. I mean, I think that's the million dollar question. Um, the It's not a super sustainable model or if it is, it's just not immune to much. You know, like if you own a restaurant and the subway is down that weekend or there's a flood or a water main break, like that could put you back quite a bit. So restaurateurs are always 
in need of savings. They're, you know, cash in hand businesses. They don't have a ton of wiggle room. So if something like this happens, the ones that will survive, it's really case by case based on what their relationship is with their landlords, because that's their biggest expense. And even though there's government relief coming in the form of the Paycheck Protection Program, that's not really helping people cover their basic rent costs. So if if you don't have a very helpful landlord and you haven't been able to make a ton off of delivery and takeout, um, you might have some real issues reopening. In terms of how we can change the business to be more sustainable in the long run, I think a lot of people are trying to think about that right now. And it's really hard because part of fixing, quote unquote, fixing the business also means making it a better business for the workers. And that's been a big issue that people have been looking at over the past you know, number of years. So how do you build this business where people can be paid and taken care of? Um, and there's actually a way to, for the owner to save money for the long term and not make consumers pay exorbitant amount, amounts for the food that they eat. And I don't really know what the answer is to that um, beyond just having people pay more for their food. Yeah. I mean, th- this touches on um, the incredible article about the problems with the meat industry and what happens when you go after cheap meat. Uh, I thought that I knew a, a lot about the industry, but the images of chickens and pigs being too big for their legs. Um, right just as like, I can't get that out of my head uh, at all. So again, it's like, it is this exposure during this time where things calm down and people have to really reflect on it and understand why there's a meat shortage or perceived meat shortage and all of, all of it behind it. Do you think that the, you know, again, as your, as your role, like going after these stories and telling them now um, feel that they get more impact or more eyes on it because people either have more time or they're really beginning to explore where food is coming from. Yeah, I think people are more, more, more open, more open, open to these stories. I mean, even just personally, I'm more open to these stories because there have been people complaining about our food supply chain and the industrial meat system forever. And you kind of, you know, not turn a blind eye, but you you forget about them or you think like, okay, yes, I want to buy ethical meat. And then you might just have a fast food burger the next day because it's delicious. But I think this is really bringing it home, like hearing about hundreds of thousands of pigs that have to be euthanized because they literally cannot live another week because they're bred to be so big. It just, it makes it feel so real. And just seeing that this is such a such a high impact story. You can't really ignore the story of the food supply issues right now. I think almost every American is aware of it. I think this is a moment where we can really explore how we got here and how maybe we can all be eating better on the other side of this. I mean, one of the bright spots from all this is the rise of CSAs and applications for it. And I think people are really wanting to get a closer relationship to farms, both for lack of, uh, or less touch points, but also just really understanding and knowing where the food comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think people, 
getting into the CSA system, whether it's farm boxes or getting a CSA from a butcher, um, is a great thing to do in this moment. You get better food, you're paying more for it, but it's better. I think there's, you know, Dan Barber keeps writing about, uh, that it's still not going to be sustainable, that he still expects like 40% of small farms to go out of business at the end of this, um, because we're just not, set up correctly. But I think this hopefully will introduce more people to the farms around them and to, you know, great butchers around them. One of the other issues that I think that seems to be um, a hot button for you is delivery app fees, (laughs) which is also finally getting its day in court. Can you talk about the changes that were made just this week alone and and how um, it finally might actually help restaurants? Sure. Yeah. The, the big, um, third party delivery apps, uh, they charge oftentimes 30% commissions on every restaurant delivery order. And it makes sense that they would take a commission or a fee because they do supply the drivers and the insurance. Um, but 30%, which they say goes oftentimes to marketing is just too extreme for many restaurants to bear. So many restaurateurs will say that, they are barely getting by on delivery. Some say that it costs them more to be open to do delivery than to just shut down because of their labor costs and utilities and everything else. Uh, So now multiple cities around the U.S. have enacted emergency commission caps um, from 15 to 20%. So that's Seattle, San Francisco, D.C., New York, Uh, Chicago, Boston, and LA are also looking into this. So those might pass there as well. Um, It's just just such a screwed up system because these apps aren't making money. Uh, They're pulling from restaurants that don't make that much money. And it's all so that a consumer can have an unrealistic idea of what they should be able to get. So a consumer can have anything delivered to their door without paying extra for it. Um, This week, it was announced that Uber Eats is trying to acquire Grubhub, and they're still negotiating over a deal, but it will most likely happen because it kind of needs to happen. These companies are both losing money on this, and any kind of merger will save them it's estimated at least $300 million. Um, and the market share keeps going down for Grubhub. So they really do need to merge if they want to stay in the game. Um, as things begin to reopen and you have a great guide on, is it safe to eat at restaurants yet? Um, you did touch on this before, but when do you feel, or what is the discussion around introducing other stories uh, back to eater? So much of the coverage, if not all of it, is related to coronavirus or the issues related to it, where do you feel that you might be able to have some fun stories, kind of like the ones you had where it's like tracking uh, people on their campaign, the presidential campaign and what they eat? Where does that come in and and how do you strike that balance? That's a great question. I hope soon. I I think it might depend city by city based on the climate and how their reopenings are going. So you, you do have a lot of cities that are starting to have dining scenes again. Um, But I think also there is a fatigue from the reader's point of view at a national level of just reading about coronavirus all the time um, or just reading about what to do at home. So I think there's a need for it and we're going to need to get back into it sooner rather than later. 
the travel stuff, unfortunately, is, you know, not going to be able to come back for a little bit or we're going to have to change it dramatically. Um, but I think fun stories do have a place and, and need to come back soon. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, as a New Yorker and an avid uh, foodie, what do you miss the most? I'm, I miss so much of it. I was just saying last night how if, even though it might be deemed irresponsible, if the dive bar near me opened, I would be there in a hot second. <laughs> like, I'm so desperate to just be in bar spaces again. I, I pick up a grocery box from a bar around the corner from me every week. And just like being near that space is so, is so nice for me because I just miss, I miss those spaces. Um, and it, it, it's so hard because when you do, if you, I don't know if you've done some takeout or any kind of pickup, you feel like you're going to be able to interact and you still just have to have a short conversation and then move along. And it's so sad. Yeah. You want to like chit chat and see how things are going and ask about business. And then they're just like, uh, please don't breathe on me. Thank you for your business. (laughs) Exactly. They're like, okay, there's a line, please move on. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely it's absolutely heartbreaking, and and even for that, um, even when things do reopen, mannequins are not just. How do you feel about the loss of energy or just the vibe of a place? Um, will that sustain your favorite bar, or are you just okay being in a bar, the only one at a counter drinking a, a whiskey? Yeah, I mean that imagining that kind of world is incredibly sad uh, because you do go out for the energy. If you just wanted a drink, you could just have one in your house. But looking towards Hong Kong, I found a little uplifting because you know they've they've done a really good job of beating back the virus. And if you look at their nightlife scene, it looks like it was in the old days. So I do think we will be in a world again, eventually, where we do have bars and restaurants that feel lively and feel full of energy. We just have to be patient. Is there anything else that gives you hope? I I guess seeing how creative all these restaurants are and all these bar owners are, like all the things they're coming up with, the way they're trying to connect with their communities. I find it very uplifting. Um, the way they reach out on Instagram to ask what people want, like, do you need bread? Should I sell flour? Would you do this kind of thing or that kind of thing? Um, I think, you know, in addition to the restaurants that have good relationships with their landlords, I think the restaurants that have good relationships with their communities are the ones that will be strong coming out of this because this has forced us to really know that the places around us are the ones that are so important. There are so many cool restaurants in Manhattan that I have not been to in the last few months. And I don't, you know, it's fine. I, I can live without them, but the place next to me where I'm picking up my groceries or getting my to go margarita, they're my lifeline right now. Mm. Uh, And for people who are looking to support or help lend their voice, um, just be another petition signer, where would you direct them to direct their energies? I mean, I think spending money at your local restaurant is a great way to do it. Give to their GoFundMes uh, and then give to the food banks because they are really in a tough spot right now. And I think we oftentimes when we focus so much on restaurants, we forget about the rest of the community in the city. And so I think those places could really use um, 
money and also time for anyone who can volunteer uh, virtually or in person if they feel safe doing that. Amazing. Uh, Amanda, thank you for joining us. Where can people um, get coverage, get your newsletter, listen to your podcast, uh, et cetera? Go to eater.com for all that good stuff. And our podcast is called Eater's Digest. It is on all of those podcasting apps. So please listen to us there. Amazing. Um, We are going to take another musical break, play a song from our archives, and we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. I know you've been away for a long time Feels like ten years or more You got me to thinking I shouldn't have said all those Things I regret even more now I'm feeling sentimental Times I'm living for the past Hold your face before my eyes But it never seems to last So let's go back to Pacific Road When those monarchs come back home I know I won't make it alone We'll love and laugh in a tavern When that evening sun goes down And meet halfway in Pacific Road From limb to limb Wake up early But who am I fooling There's no one next to me And there on the misty street Is that neon light we know Often I've longed for your silhouette Glowing inside that window So let's go back to Pacific Grove Monarchs come back home I know I won't make it alone We'll love and laugh in a tavern When that evening sun goes down And meet halfway in Pacific Grove Pacific Grove Sun goes down 
halfway in Pacific Grove. We'll meet halfway in Pacific Grove. Pacific Grove. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash snacky. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, uh, with our ongoing coronavirus pandemic coverage. We welcome Pearl Charles to Snacky Tunes. Pearl, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, how are you and where are you? I'm home in Los Angeles, California. Um, I live in a neighborhood called Mount Washington and I'm doing pretty good considering, you know, the state of the world. <laughs> have you found this to be a creative time period or have you gone to the other side of I'm just binging everything I possibly can and nothing gets done and that's okay. I'd say I'm, you know, healthily in the middle of those two things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I finished a record right before this, which I'm really grateful for because I can see how hard it is to get things done now. And I also filmed a music video right before, like literally the weekend before everything shut down. So I've been able to continue working on all of that stuff because there's lots of back end, you know, obviously the editing and doing the artwork and all of that for the album. Um, But my boyfriend and I have been holed up here at the house and we actually bought a Rhodes electric piano right before everything went down as well. So we've kind of been here messing around with the Rhodes, setting up our little home studio and building it up, buying little pieces of gear that we can get, you know, and just trying to stay creative and trying to stay positive and doing the best we can. What is one particular achievement you've made with the roads that had it not been the, for the pandemic, you don't think you would have learned it or, or made that uh, evolutionary leap? Well, my new record is really more keyboard based than the previous. So I learned one of the songs that I'm actually going to do today um, on the roads. So that was something that I didn't, I had a keyboard that I had bought like a nineties electric keyboard, which was fun to mess around with, but it's not quite as inspiring as when you really sit down with the real thing. 
Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, home is Los Angeles. Uh, you, uh, you were born there and you grew up there. How do you feel that Los Angeles has influenced the music that you write? Because you used to be in a rock band, um, you know, and your, song, your songs and sound has evolved. How has the city played a role? Well, I always say I grew up in Hollywood, like a few blocks away from Laurel Canyon. So I think that that influenced me whether or not I was conscious of it at the time. Um, And my dad was really into that kind of music. I mean, he was into Bob Dylan and the Beatles and everything. But I kind of feel like even though those artists aren't like necessarily connected directly with the Laurel Canyon scene, as much as you would say, like Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or something like they're all like peripherally kind of involved. I kind of lump them all together as like the 60s conscious era of rock and roll so I think that really like has seeped in but um my mom was really into country music I guess this isn't so much LA based but my mom was really into country music so that was a lot of what I listened to growing up as well and so I kind of feel like those two things which were also very much married in the Laurel Canyon scene with the birds and things like that that's like been a really big influence on me You've talked about your parents um, both being creatives and pushing you to a creative direction. How do you feel that influenced the choices that you made? I mean, there's so many stories of parents who don't understand their kids being creative or don't really get what their uh, children are trying to do. And they put those creative constraints around them and that's how they break through. Having that encouragement, did that open you up or do you feel like it held you back because you didn't have the uh, same things that people used to used to rebel against. Well, I definitely think it's an interesting thing. Like you said, like most people rebel against their parents by becoming artistic, or maybe not most, but I definitely have that experience with a lot of people I know. My boyfriend was actually raised by artists as well, so he and I have that in common. But a lot of other people we meet definitely we meet musicians who are like told while they're growing up that they should try to pursue something that's more solid. That being said, everything in the world is so different now from when I was growing up and when our parents were growing up. So even the art world seems less stable than it once did. But definitely, like, I mean, I have two sisters and a brother, and none of them chose to pursue the arts. They're still in, like, creative industries. Like, they all work in the film industry. But they're more behind the scenes and, um, you know in other elements instead of like the actual artist role. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it really helped because I was nurtured, but I also, you know, I didn't necessarily come to find it on my own. I mean, my parents saw that I loved music, so they just really encouraged me to take lessons and go to camps and things like that. So I think that that helped with my skills, but I don't know what it would have been like to have found it on my own, you know, like they always just were like, you're, you clearly enjoy music and you're good at it. So you should pursue it. And I did enjoy it. So I was always happy to do it. And I never really thought twice about it. When you say it's the art world is less stable, can you clarify? Well, what I mean is that obviously I, and I can't speak to every industry, but I mean, I think it's kind of true across the board, but especially in music. I mean, I idolize like the seventies and I watch these documentaries of these bands that had, private jets and they were trashing hotel rooms. And I mean, that's not really like what I want for myself as an artist, (laughs) but times have really changed because the kind of music that is the most popular kind of music is different now. And the way we consume music is really different. So there's not as much money to be made. 
And I actually think that the coronavirus thing has been really interesting because I've seen artists on a level that I would never have expected reaching out to their fans directly and doing things like Patreon, which I haven't done yet, but I'm really interested in it because I kind of think like, why are we relying on this middleman to release our music and connect with our fans when our fans really just want to connect with us directly and support us directly? And now there's kinds of means to do that, which seem to be really great. Right. I mean, outside of distribution or spreading the word to an established network, that's about it because every other tool exists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's even true of the recording thing. Like my boyfriend and I were talking about how in the 70s, we're like, oh, it would have been cool if you had a home recording set up in the 70s because like it would sound like all the records we love to a certain degree, but it would cost you, I don't even know how much, thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, maybe $100,000 to get that kind of legitimate setup. Whereas today you really can with digital recording and, you know, if you know how some workarounds, you can get some analog stuff in there too for the right price and kind of make your home studio and actually be able to make consumable recordings, you know? Can we hear a song? Yeah, definitely. Um, the first song I'm going to play, all the songs I'm going to play are from my new album that's coming out later this year. But um, I think first I'll do one called What I Need. Great. Uh, here's Pearl Charles, Snacky Tunes Live on Heritage Radio Network. Something to say, but the cat's always got your tongue. Put it off for another day, but one day it's gonna come. Because you keep on holding back, I guess that we both do. And it's easier to live this life than to tell the truth. Speak your name, it's gonna be the last time I do 
Psychedelics play a big role in your music and the lyrics that you write. When did you first get introduced to them and when did you start weaving them into your craft? Well, I first was introduced to psychedelics, you know, when I was 15 in high school and I had a really incredible experience, but I don't think I really had the mind to, to realize how much it was going to change my life and how I could use it in a way to benefit me creatively and personally. Like it was definitely a very recreational experience. And that was the case using psychedelics through my teen years into like my early twenties. But then I was in a band called the blank tapes and my partner in that band taught me about Ram Dass and be here now. And that kind of, Eastern philosophy as it's been tied into taking psychedelics. And really, I mean, ultimately Ram Dass says that meditation is the key. And I think a lot of people would say that, but psychedelics are an interesting window into potentially the same part of the mind that you can reach with meditation, which is just like more of a flow state. And um, yeah, I've found, I mean, I've written full songs completely like, it just feels like you're a channel. And I think a lot of artists have talked about that, like Bob Dylan, definitely, who is one of my idols, of course. And what are you channeling or what muse is coming through you when on psychedelics versus when you're in a sober state of mind? Well, you know, it might be the same one, ultimately, but it's kind of about being open. I think you're more open when you have let your guard down and when your ego is a little less uh, empowered, which is like the joy of psychedelics, I think. Um, but you can get there when you're, when you're completely sober and even when you're not even in a meditative state, you can get there if you just, if you sit down and do the work every day. I mean, it's kind of like, if you're familiar with the artist's way, like that's their philosophy in that book is like, if you just show up to do the work, like eventually the muse will come and visit you. It can feel very thankless sometimes because sometimes she does not come. <laughs> But when she comes, it's great. <laughs> I mean, so psychedelics are just a bit of like a jumpstart or a shortcut for people who maybe uh, don't want to take the time to learn a meditation practice or do the work day in, day out. Yes, that's true. I didn't mean, I don't want to say that you should use it as a shortcut because it's definitely like, it's a, it can be a dangerous game. It's a slippery slope because first of all, I have a lot of experience with it. So I can kind of, there's a there's an amount of control that I can still maintain in my mind when doing it so that I'm able to use it for a creative practice. Um, there's a really amazing book that came out a few years ago by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. And he talks a lot about this idea of set and setting and how like if you're in the right place in the right context, then you can get that out of it. But that being said, if you're at a party or you're like somewhere you're uncomfortable uh, just in a situation that like isn't ideal for taking psychedelics, it probably won't benefit you as much. Uh, you, you, in your writing and your songs, you find a lot of balance between 
lightness and darkness. And you, you even referenced to the differences between what you grew up listening to versus what your mom grew up listening to. How do you strike that balance to you know achieve uh, optimism and a, a rosy colored life while still touching on the depths of the darker side of the human soul? That's a really good question. I mean, I think life is that yin and yang and you really can't have the light without the darkness to counteract it. So I feel like it would be somewhat dishonest to only portray one side of that. So I think that's like something that's really important to me because I think that's like just honest. So that's kind of how I've kept that in mind. Can we hear another song? Totally. Uh, Actually, this one is a perfect example of what we're talking about. It's called Take Your Time. I hear your stars on the rise Don't you let it pass you by
as we mentioned, you have a new record coming out early 2021. Uh, you recorded a video. The single's coming out in August. Has anything changed or anything in your approach changed since the coronavirus hit? And if so, what is it and, and how might have the project evolved? Well, I mean, that's a huge question and a big yes, because the album was actually supposed to come out in September. And then we were kind of just waiting and seeing what was going to happen because we really still at this point, and I don't know how long it's going to be, have no idea when touring is going to open up again. And that up until now has been the primary way for musicians to make money in the 21st century. So I think that we're really still kind of just figuring out the new approach as we go or taking it day by day. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of this live stream stuff is going to play a huge part of it. And like we were talking about maybe Patreon. I don't know. Like I want to, I've always wanted to connect more directly with the fans and, and with the people who aren't fans yet and the people who want and need this music. And I believe that like every single artist has their, uh, audience that is out there that's looking for them and is thirsty for that. I mean, I know, I know how like listening to music makes me feel. I'm a music fan. So I know that there's people out there and I'm always looking for new music and always like really hungry for that. So I'm like, I I know there's people who want that. So I'm just kind of thinking about how, even though I can't actually go there and be in front of these people right now, how can I get that music to them? Yeah. I mean, you also have to create more in a sense. I think some people before, like, the record is the record, and now I'm going to go play the songs from the record, and that that was good enough. And that was good enough for a very, very long time to make a career. And now there has to be an evolution uh, in order to survive as an artist, but also to to find that connection through the fans and new audiences. Totally. And I mean, ultimately, like, well, there's so many different parts to the music-making process that are so pleasurable, And being on tour and playing live is like top of the line. I first, before I played like music in bands, I did musical theater when I was growing up. Um, And I remember being in my first like musical theater production when I was five years old. And I was like high off of that audience performer connection. And so that's something that is sad that it's kind of gone away for the time being, but the feeling of the energy exchange of the live stream, like it was really real. When my boyfriend and I did one, I felt like we were connecting. It was kind of like what I'm saying, like we were almost connecting more directly with the fans. Also, you got to have um, their feedback, like live, real time. So even though it's a little distracting sometimes, it's still really nice to kind of see how people are connecting with it in this new way. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the other themes from your music is this idea of never feeling settled and just being restless and wanting more from life. How has this great pause made you adjust your mindset? Well, it's really made me reevaluate. I I think kind of what you were saying before about needing to create more, like it's all about the creation that's the part. Okay, sorry. I feel like I sort of lost my train of thought before when I was talking about performing because that is so exciting. But the other side of it that's also so amazing is the creation and that will never stop. And you'll always need to be finding new things to talk about or new ways to express the same feelings because I feel like life is kind of like a lot of 
repetition of the same scenarios in different contexts. So it's about finding like new, new words for similar feelings sometimes. I mean, and, and new words for new feelings, but yeah, I think like, like you were saying, the creation aspect is kind of like really at the forefront now. Just continue. Um, you mentioned the balance of romance and optimism, similar to light and darkness, but um, almost an existential crisis of a dissatisfied generation what hope do you find in things or what, what gives you strength to, to know that the hand that you've been dealt and to claw your way out of it or, or see the brighter side of things? Well, I kind of feel like the world is just the ultimate expression of the universe and the universe's creation. And it's, 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 dark and light, like you said, and like I was saying before, I think it's like, you really can't have one without the other. They inherently go hand in hand. And so there is beauty in the pain and the suffering of the world. But that being said, when you zoom out as an empathetic person, it's very hard because you don't want to see suffering and pain in the world. But that's why like, I just feel like we have to be really grateful. The people who have who are able to survive in this time and you know some people are even able to thrive it's like it's really something to be grateful for and I just try to like you know look at the little things and realize how lucky I feel like I really am to just be able to make music and have people listen to it like and I'm not like obviously a huge star or anything I, I still am working really hard on establishing myself and getting my voice out there but I I still know how lucky I am to get to do that and to just get to be a part of the world as you know good or bad as it is so I guess Amazing. that's part of it yeah <laughs> um, well we want to make sure we have time for one more song but um where can people find you get updates about the new record uh get the video when it drops get the single etc well, I'd say my primary social media would be Instagram, which is at Pearl Charles, but I'm on all platforms, Twitter and Facebook. I guess that's not all platforms. I'm like, I'm behind the times. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, on YouTube. If you just look up Pearl Charles, I'm around and I'm always, I share everything obsessively because I really want people to hear what I'm working on because I'm really excited about it so yeah give me a follow there and um, new stuff is coming in August but also we're going to release some demos and some stuff from the last record too to kind of like close up that cycle kiss it goodbye for now and then get ready for the new stuff we want to thank Amanda Clute for coming on as well um, and for joining us from her home and for Pearl for calling in from your home We'll be back next week with another coronavirus Snacky Tunes episode edition. What are you going to take us out with? This is the title track of the new record. It's called Magic Mirror. Amazing. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. It's no mistake, I 
This magical one knows just what to do. All you seek is inside of you. Magic mirror, what can I do? I've been lost inside of You can blaze them, try not to let it phase you, but that lightning keeps crashing through. Ooh, every thought I think has come true. Can't tell the dream from deja vu. Magic mirror, tell me true. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.